Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Selling Greenville, your favorite real estate podcast here in the Greenville area of South Carolina. I am your host, as always, Stan McCune, realtor right here in the upstate of South Carolina, and you can find all of my contact information in the show notes if you need to reach out to me for any of your real estate needs. And please, if you like the show, if you love the show, please hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using. Uh, if you don't know what podcast app you're using, um, I can't help you with that, but we are on pretty much all the podcast apps. And if we're not on the one that you like, please let me know that as well, because I'll try to get it on there. Uh, but hit the little subscribe button, wherever that is on your app. Please hit the little five-star review button. Uh, sorry, the five-star rating button. And please leave a short little review. All of those things I greatly appreciate. I want to talk today about investing in a shifting market because this is the kind of market that we're in right now. We are in a shifting market. We've talked about this a lot. Um, it's still, as of the time I'm recording this, which um, I'm, this episode will be releasing a few weeks after I am recording it right now. Um, but as of recording it, it's still very much a seller's market. But we know that, that the market is going to start to shift. Well, I have been involved in real estate in one way or another through multiple different markets. Um, going all the way back to the Great Recession, even though I wasn't a realtor back then, um, I, was in, I, I was purchasing my own primary residence and I was doing some basic real estate investing. After that, um, I did more real estate investing after the Great Recession. Um, and then during that time period was when I also became a realtor. And then I've been a realtor now for almost seven years. And so um, during the past 14 years, I have really seen the market really just go in a lot of different directions. And I think that there are some little nuggets to take away from what all of these different markets have been like. So basically, I see three different markets that I, I just want to talk about and, and think about from the standpoint of what they, what they looked like, what the conditions were like, and what are some takeaways from those markets. Um, and so we're going to actually just not talk about what the past two years have been like, because we've talked about that a lot on the show. I started the show in 2020. The entire show has been about the basically pandemic era of real estate. So we all know what, what that has been up to this point. We don't know what lies ahead. Um, but let's start behind that, behind uh, the timeline of the pandemic. And in the period that I'm going to, for the purposes of this show, call pre-pandemic, which is as I'm defining it, and, and these are only my definitions. Nobody else has come up with these definitions. This is just from the purposes of this show, what I'm using. The year 2016 through 2020, 2016 to 2020, I'm calling that the pre-pandemic uh, market. So what was the market like in 2016 through 2020? And by, by the way, um, the reason why I'm doing this is we don't know exactly where the market is going, but there's a good chance that it ends up returning to one of these markets that we've already had in the past. And at the very least, wherever it does go, 
it will resemble some aspects of these markets. So that will help us to be prepared as the market shifts. We know, okay, here's what happened all these years ago. There's a good chance that this is what's going to happen again. Uh, so pre-pandemic, 2016 to 2020, um, that was very much a seller's market. And we've talked about this before. It was a seller's market, but not an insane one. You know, the past two years, it's been an insane seller's market. 2016 to 2020, that was kind of, I don't know, you might call it a comfortable seller's market. It wasn't crazy. If a home came on the market on Tuesday, there's a good chance it would still be there on Sunday. You know, the past two years, we've had what I call ASAP showings, where it's like a house comes on the market and I have someone calling me panicking like, we need to see this today before it's gone. Um, It's been that way now for two years. And quite frankly, I'm ready for that to change. Um, and, And I'm ready for that to go back to what it looked like more from 2016 through, you know, the onset of the pandemic in 2020. You would occasionally find good deals on market, whether rental properties, whether flips, but they were few and far in between. Um, But they would happen. I had clients, investor clients that I had searches for, you know, looking for properties below 150,000, whatever the case may be. And a lot of them got good properties that way that were on MLS. Um, That seems almost impossible to fathom because the past two years, they've been non-existent. I mean, there's almost, if you're like looking for, for instance, like a house to flip, there's almost like no point in even exploring the MLS right now. There's just there's just been nothing on there. Um, there have been some rare exceptions, um, but the exceptions, I mean, we're talking about like two uh, exceptions per year, something crazy like that. Otherwise, um, it's been pretty much non-existent. From 2016 to 2020, you could you would have a handful of properties that would come on the market really every month that would make for for good potential flips or uh, investment properties in general. Real estate wholesaling, um, which we've talked about before on the show, real estate wholesaling is when you get a home under contract and then you assign that contract to an end buyer and for a, a higher amount than what you have it under contract for. And then the wholesaler, that person in the middle, they pocket the difference. Um, if you don't, I'm not going to get into the weeds any more than that on it. If you want to learn more about real estate wholesaling, um, go ahead and look that up. I'm going to just reference it here in passing for those that are interested and, and kind of understand the concept. Wholesaling really boomed from 2016 to 2020 during this pre-pandemic era because wholesalers had these massive buyers lists. They had all sorts of people that were were looking to buy investment properties and that they could, if they got something under contract, they could almost certainly flip it off to someone and make a, a good profit on, on it uh, by flipping it off to one of their hundreds of buyers that they had um, on their buyers list. And there was just enough motivated sellers who didn't want to go on market um, and, and all of that, you know, maybe their home needed a lot of work and they didn't think that they could sell it on market, that they were able to, to the, um, contact the wholesalers. And by the way, if you don't know, when you see like signs that say we buy houses, that kind of stuff, those are typically real estate wholesalers. Um, 
And so during this time, there was enough people that were reaching out to these types of individuals that were calling the We Buy Houses uh, signs and, and all of that. And, and then the wholesalers had a huge list of buyers willing to snatch up properties. And so as a result, wholesaling really boomed during this time. Now, wholesaling, which I have done a little bit of, um, in my opinion, I, I think it's been in, in a lot of ways harder the past two years, although in a lot of ways easier as well. It, it's a lot of people right now are just able to to list their home on market, even if it needs a full gut, and there will be a line of buyers ready to buy it. Um, and so from that standpoint, it's been trickier. But from the standpoint of wholesalers being able to just sell any property they got under contract, like it's never been easier to be a wholesaler. 2016 to 2020 set the stage for that. Um, and a ton of wholesalers came into the market during that time. Um, because that period of time was still a seller's market, you really didn't see lowballs accepted uh, with a few very rare instances of properties like major fixer uppers potentially getting uh, low cash offers. So you might see like a fixer upper come on the market for 160,000, for instance. Um, and then someone swoops in with a cash offer for like 130 and the the person just doesn't want to even that you know it's a good enough offer you know they were hoping to get 160 but it's like okay 130 great you know it's this property is not doing anything for me it needs a ton of work there's probably not going to be a ton of other better offers i'll just take that lowball offer um there was a company during this time that i i would frequently get offers from that was called um sfr3 and they would do that. They would send these sight unseen offers um, that had long due diligence periods and they, they were cash, you know, well below what a home was listed for. Uh, and there were a few others as well that, that did similar things like that. Um, but more or less, because it, it was still a seller's market, you didn't see a lot of low balls accepted. Um, with regard to uh, rental properties, this was a, a pretty decent time, not not a great time, but a decent time to be able to find rental properties. You could find some pretty good deals, particularly for properties that needed some work. You had to be selective, um, but the opportunities were out there. And, you know, basically, you could hit the 1% rule if you're willing to put in the sweat equity. The, the 1% rule, roughly speaking, being uh, that a property that you purchase rents for 1% of what you purchase it for. If you purchase a property for $100,000, you rent it for $1,000 per month. Um, it was hard to hit the 1% rule, but every now and then a property, like I said, that needed some sweat equity put into it would hit the market with enough regularity that you could find properties, rental properties that hit that rule. Um, you had to be careful though with regard to flipping houses without uh, the massive year-on-year appreciation that we've had the past two years. The from 2016 to 2020, it, it was that was an interesting market to to flip housing. There, there's opportunities in any market, um, but that was a, a market during that period of time. We saw appreciation happening at about five percent per year, um, whereas recently. 
the past year, appreciation has been closer to like 20% per year. Um, well, when you've got 5% appreciation per year, if you overinvest in a property or you don't completely uh, a- accurately estimate the rehab costs, whatever the case may be, you can't just wait it out. You can't just say, you know what, I'm going to put this property on the back burner, let it grow in value by 20% and then sell it next year. Um, you can't do that because if if it only grows by 5%, like the your holding costs, what it costs for you to keep that property for a year, it just, it just doesn't make sense. The numbers don't work. And so you had to be in that market really careful um, because... You, you needed to make sure your numbers were, were really tidy um, and that you could sell that property and make a profit pretty much right away. And if you did, that's great. It was a seller's market. If, you, if your numbers were accurate, you would make a profit because it would sell fairly quickly at the end of the day. Um, and this is the market where I developed my what I call multiple exit strategy philosophy uh, because I realized very quickly as I was flipping houses that this was a problem. Like if the margins were slim, then I needed to be able to have more than one option. Maybe even if the margins aren't slim, I wanted to make sure that I had more than one direction I could go in, whether turning the property into a rental, whether doing a cash out refinance, and then just kind of holding off on doing anything to the property, whatever the case may be, doing seller financing it to someone. Um, so during that period of time, I really started focusing on properties that had a degree of flexibility where I could go in different directions. Because if I got stuck with one, I knew that I wasn't, uh, I, I, I didn't want to be in that situation where it was like, okay, now what do I do? I can't, I can't do anything with this property. I can't sell it without losing money. I can't uh, wait a year. I'll still, I'll lose even more money. What do I do? Um, and so during that time, I tweaked my strategy to focus on properties that had those multiple potential exit strategies. Now, um, with regard to what what homes, again, we're talking about pre-pandemic from 2016 to 2020. What homes typically sold for was about 2% less than what they were listed for, with sellers typically paying some or all of buyer's closing costs. Um, it typically took a few weeks to go under contract. Um, you know, property might be on the market two, three weeks, something like that before it goes under contract. Um, but bidding wars were still happening, uh, particularly on homes that were were very common. Again, uh, homes, not that were common, homes that were in uh, desirable locations that were desirable homes, those bidding wars were common. Uh, and so basically, there there weren't a ton of, of full price offers unless there was a bidding war. Most offers were going to be a little bit below what a home was listed for unless it was a bidding war type of situation. The bidding wars didn't have a as many people participating in them as what we've seen the past couple of years. So this is going to be something that, um, you know, as the market shifts, I'm going to be looking very, very closely at, you know, sellers have been used to not having to pay for buyer's closing costs. Sellers have been used to getting more than what their home is listed for. Um, That is definitely going to change and it'll probably revert back to something similar to this where sellers, 
you know, if you list a home for 250000 you might get it under contract and everything about the home is good. Um, you might get it under contract for two forty five with the buyer asking for you to pay $5,000 towards their closing costs. That would have been the norm in 2016 to 2020. It's not been the norm the past two years. Um, so we'll, we'll have to adjust on the fly as these things change. The past two years, we've not really, uh, we've seen contingencies kind of just go away. Um, contingencies being specifically appraisal contingencies, financing contingencies, home sale contingencies, CL100 contingencies, um, and the like. And so contingencies back in 2016 to 2020, they were totally acceptable. Um, and cash offers happened, but usually it was on kind of unique properties. Um, and it wasn't uncommon for potential investment properties like fixer upper types of properties to have free first looks for buyers. Like they were able to have a due diligence period um, with basically no skin in the game where they could just back out for any reason, get back all their earnest money, um, not have any termination fees associated with it. That was very, very common. In fact, during that period of time, I had some buyer agents try to, to get free first looks for their clients on um, just normal houses, houses that, that weren't fixer-uppers. And I remember, I mean, it was pretty common that you would get offers like that and we'd have to counter back like, no, we're, we're not accepting uh, offers with free first looks. Like that just gives the buyer way too much ability to back out, um, particularly with it being a seller's market. Um, so that was something that is, has was a lot different back then than it is now. I think contingencies are going to come back. We're going to see, I think particularly the one that has really been hit hard is the home sale contingency. Um, basically, buyers have, have had to either buy without selling their home and then sell their home after buying or had to structure their deal in, in, in some way so that basically their next purchase is not contingent in any way on the sale of their home. And that, that's been a big problem. That's one of the most frustrating things about this market for a lot of people trying to move. And, and that's contributed to the inventory problem, right? Because people, if they're not confident that they can find a house that they need, um, then they're, they're a house that they want to move in, I guess I should say, then they're not going to list their home for sale and then get that under contract and then quickly try to find a home to move into because they're not confident they're going to find a home to move into. Um, so I think that that as inventory starts to pick back up again, as we have more homes on the market, I think we're going to see more of home sale contingencies make a comeback. I'm, I'm hoping that we see that mainly for, for my buyer clients. Um, but also I think that that will just help that that's more of a sign of a market that is healthy in my opinion. Um, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention during this time period, um, contractors were still very busy and still very unreliable. And we've run into that the past two years a lot. Um, but that was very much the case back then as well. So the market would have to shift quite a bit for contractors to go back to um, to a state where they're not busy and unreliable. Um, so that's 
took a little bit longer than I hoped for that section. That was the pre-pandemic section. We got two more to go. Um, what do I wish I would have known prior to 2016 through 2020? Um, what I wish I would have known was that multifamily, including mobile home parks, would become supremely valuable. Um, and the reason why I think they became so valuable just kind of out of nowhere was that a combination of things. Uh, one, obviously, bigger pockets and other um, sources of, of information um, that became very mainstream started pushing the idea of um, house hacking onto younger generations. Um, books like the the Four Hour Work Week encouraging you know multiple income streams um, to to help people potentially not have to to do the you know the grind of, of working in the office um, and as people with just more money started looking to purchase more investment real estate. So I think all of those things kind of came to a head and resulted in multifamily becoming dramatically more valuable in the in people's minds than it had been in the past. Um, and as an extension of that, there would be an influx of people attempting real estate investments with small portfolios of single family homes and condos. So that's something that I never fully saw coming, um, but that's something that also happened during that period of time. Just investing in real estate became something that people ha finally had the money to do after they had recovered from the Great Recession and all of that, um, and that pushed the value up for multifamily and certain single-family homes as well. Another thing I wish I would have known prior to this time was just how valuable homes sitting on acreage would be. Or, or even large lots. Like that has really taken off the past two years. Mini farms have really taken off the past two years. There's a lot of money to be made uh, for those, you know, if, had we been forward thinking about that back in 2016 to 2020 about trying to, to snatch up uh, properties that, you know, had acreage and a house on them. Um, hindsight is 2020. Uh, but uh, but those are some things that I wish I would have known. All right, moving right along. The next period of time, post-recession. This is from, I'm calling this from 2012 to 2015, uh, post-Great Recession. This was a neutral market, okay? Um, so we, we had the extreme seller's market post-pandemic. Um, we had, or I should say pandemic era. Um, we had uh, a slight, a comfortable seller's market from 2016 through 2020. And from 2012 through 2015, we had what I would deem a neutral market. Not not exactly a seller's market, not exactly a buyer's market. Um, during this period of time, it wasn't uncommon for homes to sit for a while, for, for quite some time before they went under contract. Months um, were not uncommon. Um, there were plenty of options for buyers who might have more properties than they're interested in to, to uh, be able to see in a given day. In other words, uh, someone that's looking for a place to move and they're looking at everything that's on the market, there might be 15 homes that they're interested in that are on the market and they can't even look at all of them in a weekend. Um, and so there were situations back then where people would 
look at, you know, five or six homes on a Saturday and then take the week off and then come back the next Saturday and still have their original list that had 15 homes on it and still have five or six homes from that list that they're still interested in looking at and then go and and look at those homes uh, the next weekend. And that was that was the way it was. It was it was a much slower time for buyers. They could take their time. They didn't have to feel quite as rushed. Um, every market has multiple offer situations when uniquely um, when when unique situations happen and a home in a desirable area is priced very aggressively. Um, but generally speaking, uh, buyers had had time to make a decision. They could look at a home sleep on it one night, two nights, three nights, and then maybe at that point make an offer and they still had a pretty good chance of getting it. During this time when when it was a neutral market, um, there were some great rental property opportunities. Properties that immediately hit that 1% rule that I talked about before, they were abundant. There, You could all day find properties that hit the 1% rule. You could buy a condo for $40,000 that had only barely any deferred maintenance on it um, and already had a tenant in it paying $700 a month. Like, that's amazing. Uh, Imagine that in this market. I see people buying properties for $150,000 that have someone paying $700 a month in them now. Um, Just a completely different atmosphere uh, versus back then. So there were fantastic rental opportunities when we were in that neutral market, and by which I mean opportunities to purchase rental properties. Um, you could creatively flip, uh, find homes to flip. Um, most buyers weren't interested in fixer-uppers since they had other options. So if a fixer-upper stayed on the market long enough, it presented an opportunity for potential lowballs. So here's the thing, right? When you have, when you're a potential buyer and you've got like I said, as an example, 15 homes that are on the market that pique your interest, why would you even be looking at fixer-upper homes? Focus on the homes that are in good shape because that makes the most sense. No, Nobody wants a, well, I shouldn't say nobody wants a fixer-upper, but most people would prefer something that's not a fixer-upper over something that is one. And so what then would happen is the fixer-uppers would stay on the market for a while, and then that was a potential opportunity for an investor to come in and purchase it. Usually, it would have to sit on the market for a while before they would take a really lowball offer that would be of interest to an investor. But during that market, I was looking at homes. You know, what are the homes that have been on the market? Three, four, five, six months. Okay, are, are there opportunities here? Um, and that was how... We approached it back then. It was it was a different approach, and there were always opportunities uh, for that type of thing. That said, not it wasn't all uh, rosy if you were trying to flip houses because, of course, in a neutral market, it's not a seller's market, and so you had to account for that. You had to account for it. Took longer for properties to actually sell, longer for properties once they hit the market to go under contract. Um, and so you had to account for that in your timeline. So it, it t- typically took, I, I budgeted in my head back then, I assumed at least six months and potentially six to eight months from the time I purchased the property until the time I sold it. Um, and that was just because you just kind of had to assume that it might be on the market 
uh, for a few months before it actually went under contract. And it might go under contract and then fall through and then go back under contract. And so things just just took a while longer unless uh, you just had a killer deal that you put up for sale. Um, we talked about contractors before. Contractors were available. It was not hard to find people to, to do work back then. Um, although it's always in every market hard to find good people to do work. That's, that's worth mentioning. Um, but there were plenty of contractors that were available and ready uh, to assist with anything back in that market. Um, because of the abundance of on-market options, wholesaling really wasn't that big of a thing. There were not very many wholesalers. Um, you know, it, it was hard for them because what I mentioned before where wholesalers have boomed the past six years because they have massive buyers list, the buyers list were pretty small back then. You know, they, they had options for properties to sell, but not very many op- options for who to sell them to. And so that was a, a much different dynamic. I think that wholesalers are in for a pretty big uh, shock in the upcoming years if this market um, does, as the market does start to shift. We know it will. What do I wish I would have known? Um, I wish I would have known that being able to hit the 1% rule would get harder and harder uh, and that rents would go up dramatically in the upcoming years. Man, I had, of course, I graduated college in 2008. So I graduated during the Great Recession. All I saw was an abundance of potential rental properties on the market. Um, And so it just seemed like that was the norm. I had no idea that these properties would become not the norm, right? That properties that would be great rental properties for forever um, and that you could get cheap, uh, that, that that was just going to go away. And, you know, it happened. It happened almost overnight during that pre-pandemic era and then it really happened overnight during the pandemic era um and so i wish i would have known that um i don't know that i would have been able to do anything with that knowledge per se well i probably would have i probably would have been able to excuse me be more aggressive um but i was also pretty poor back then (laughs) i mean like i said i graduated college in in 2008 uh, during the Great Recession, um, it took me a while to recover from that uh, financially. So, um, so that's something that that'll be interesting. I'm I'm very interested to see will we ever, if we ever return to a neutral market, will that dynamic return where there's some great rental properties that come on the market? I don't know. I don't know if that ship has sailed permanently, or if we'll see that return. But that's something to keep an eye out for. All right, final era that we're gonna look at is. And, and th- this isn't like the final era ever, but this is really the only f- the final era that I can speak to because, like I said, I graduated college in 2008. I can't really speak to what the market was like, for instance, during the, the dot-com bubble in 2001. Um, you know, I, I just have no idea. Um, but the final um, era here that we'll talk about is the Great Recession, 2008 to 2011. This was a buyer's market. Um, homes during the Great Recession, will sit months or years. I mean, it was not uncommon to see homes sit for a year, year and a half, two years without selling. It was insane. Um, You could go on HUDHomestore.com. If you don't know what that is, it's a government website 
where you can find foreclosures. You go on there right now, um, there's probably not even a single property listed on there because there's like record low foreclosures right now. During the Great Recession, you could go on HUDHomestore.com and just scroll through dozens of foreclosures that were available, that were just sitting. My first home that I bought was a home that had been on HUD Home Store for like a year. Nobody was interested in touching it. In East Side Greenville, like one of the most desirable areas in Green, Greenville County, no one was touching it. They had no interest in it. Um, we had to do a renovation loan, and that was you know, the type of thing with these foreclosures because people didn't have the cash to be able to purchase them. You had to, to do some creative financing, and so that's what, that's what we had to do uh, during that time. That was a lot more common back then. We've almost not seen any renovation loans the past few years. Um, there were incredible opportunities everywhere for cash buyers in some of the most desirable areas of Greenville, as I've already alluded to. Um, at one point, I was under contract for a single-family home in downtown Greenville for around $100,000, but because I was so poor, um, I couldn't come up with the money I, I needed, uh, I would have needed, in order to do the updates that home needs needed. I It makes me so sad. That home now is worth like $500,000, small little home, like basically right, right on the outskirts of downtown Greenville. <clears throat> makes me very sad. Um, that I had that under contract at one point and I just, I was just so poor, um, because I'd taken so many pay cuts, you know, during, uh, the great recession and had just come out of college, you know, with $2,000 to my name when I joined the adult workforce during the great recession. Um, it, it was, it was a tough time. And, uh, but imagine now, um, imagine the, the opportunities now, uh, if we had a recession that was comparable and that type of thing happened again, um, that would be a, a pretty incredible opportunity. Again, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it's, it's whatever happens in these upcoming months and years, there's going to be some resemblance to one or more of these periods of time. And so we have to be prepared. We have to think. We have to think on our feet and be able to shift our strategy with the shifting market. During this period of time, not only could you get rental properties that hit the 1% rule, you could get properties that hit the 2% rule, which is like something that we, it's like not even, a, I mean, it is a thing, but it's like not something that you ever hear people talk about because it's so pie in the sky. This was not pie in the sky during the Great Recession. You could get a condo for like $25,000 and rent it out for $650 a month. 2% rule. Um, it was it was something else. Um, that was the people that had cash during that market absolutely made a killing setting and set themselves up for the future. Um, finding good flips to purchase was easy. But as you can imagine, the pain was in selling. You had to budget, I mean, a good year from the time you purchased until the time that you might sell the property. And you just hope that you sell it more quickly than that. Um, and also, it's worth mentioning, as the market cratered, some areas saw home values go down. And so that was a major risk that flippers had to consider. Remember, we talked earlier about how during the, the pre-pandemic era, we had to be careful that you know appreciation was only like 5% year on year. So if you ended up holding, if you ended up not being able to, to sell 
a flip for a profit, holding it wouldn't help you very much. Well, during the Great Recession, depending on when you bought and where you bought, holding it might actually result in your property losing value. And so as a flipper, like tremendous risk absorbed from that standpoint. You had to be super careful and cognizant of that possibility. Um, And all of this really, in the end, led to most house flippers being out of the game during the Great Recession. They they didn't have the money. They couldn't come up with the financing. um, And it was just too risky. Um, Wholesalers had plenty of properties, but basically no buyers. Um, A great deal with a lot of, you know, a, a pretty good amount of meat on the bone might get one or two nibbles from a couple of investors. It was not an easy market to wholesale in. Um, a comparable deal like, like that, like kind of what I have in mind that would get one or two nipples during the Great Recession would get 40 or 50 serious parties in our current market. That's how dramatically different it was. Contractors, they were bored and they needed work. Um, and a lot of them got out of the business during this time. And a lot of them are about to have to get out of the business probably um, here in, in the upcoming years if we go into recession and whatnot. Um, now, what do I wish I would have known? <laughs> this is kind of facetious, but I wish I would have known how to get uh, a hold of a ton of cash as a young 20-something, right? That, that is what I wish I would have known. Now, when I first graduated college, I knew nothing about real estate. I taught myself everything about real estate. Um, I, was, I studied religious studies in college. Um, I did not study anything finance-related or investment-related. Um, I taught myself everything that I know when it comes to that. Um, so uh, I also wish that I would have known something about real estate investing, but it wouldn't have mattered because I didn't have the cash. Um, so I, I wish that somehow I could have uh, figured out a way to come up with cash as a, as a young 20-something. Then I, I possibly could have bought that, that property downtown I like so much. Um, in all seriousness, uh, seriousness, though, assuming, let's just assume for a second I had tons of cash, um, I would have fully grasped, uh, the. I, I wish, sorry, I wish I would have fully grasped the revitalization that was coming to the west side of Greenville, um, and specifically to the different mills, Deneen, Judson, Mills Mill, Woodside Mill, um, et cetera, et cetera, and how uh, development you know, mass development by mass developers would focus on Greer and Five Forks in the upcoming years. I mean, those West Greenville mill areas, I remember getting pulled over by a cop just because I drove a nicer car through one of those areas late at night. And they were just pulling over anyone and everyone, just assuming that they were doing something wrong. If you were driving after 10 p.m. through West Greenville and it wasn't just I, I don't know, maybe even if it was a junkie car, they would have pulled me over. Who knows? But they thought I was dealing drugs, is what they thought. Um, and, and I was not dealing drugs. I've never done that before. Um, so um, it, was, it was just a completely different vibe. We should have seen it, though, right? We should have seen that that revitalization was going to happen. But I mean, parts, stretches of downtown Greenville were boarded up. Um, you know, it, it was hard to pr- project that the west side was going to change so rapidly and that those mill areas were going to change so rapidly, but they did. And those areas of Greer and and Five Forks and Simpsonville that now have so much development in them, that was farmland. Like, I would have never have guessed that that farmland 
would have all of a sudden become these massive, highly desirable neighborhoods all these years later. Um, where I live, which is near the airport, was considered rural. It was eligible for a rural USDA loan uh, not that long ago. Like it, This was considered a rural area. Now, you don't have any areas near the airport that we consider to be rural areas. So a lot happened that I had no idea was going to happen. Um, and those that were perceptive, that were in on the game before everyone else made oodles of cash. Oodles of cash. If they you know, bought up a bunch of mill houses or if they bought up a bunch of acreage um, in some of those rural areas, uh, if you were ahead of the game, you made a lot of money. And so that's, that's the thing. As the market shifts, you need to be thinking, what can I do to get ahead of the game? Um, what are the changing dynamics that, that I can then take advantage of that give me a competitive advantage? That Those are the things I'm going to be thinking about, and those are the things that all of my investor clients need to be thinking about because we don't know what changes are going to happen. We just know changes are happening, and they will happen. Um, and so as they happen, we can look back and consider what has happened in previous markets. There's a good chance that some of those things are going to happen in future markets. That's all for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the little history lesson. Um, thank you for listening. As always, my contact information is in the show notes. Reach out to me by text, phone call, however you want to, email um, for any of your real estate needs. And as always, please subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, leave a short little review, drown out the haters that have left low ratings. I haven't had anyone leave a, a negative re- review We've had a couple that have left low ratings. Let's drown them out. Get some good ratings in here. Um, I need more. I need more of you to to do it. We've not had very many do it. Please just hit that five-star rating. That's all I ask. Um, Thank you guys for listening. Um, It's been uh, a wild last few weeks. I'm going to take some time on vacation uh, in in the month of July, but I'm still going to be providing content for you guys. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. But until next time, I hope you guys stay safe and we'll talk again next week.